Welcome to Penumbra Cast, The Other Scene. I'm Fernanda Negrete from the Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Culture at the University at Buffalo. And uh, I am interviewing Brett Fimiani today, and the topic is psychosis. You'll see why. Brett Fimiani is a psychoanalyst of the San Francisco Bay Area Lacanian School of Psychoanalysis. He is also a clinical psychologist and he works with people experiencing psychosis and extreme states in his private practice in Oakland, California, and at the Haight-Ashbury Integrated Care Center in San Francisco. He is the chairperson for the Northern California chapter of the International Society for the Psychological and Social Approaches to Psychosis, and he is on the board of directors for the Bay Area Hearing Voices Network. His research interests include adapting the Lacanian analytic frame for the treatment of psychosis and extreme states, and the integration of peer and clinical models. He has presented his work on the treatment of psychosis nationally and internationally. His book, Psychosis and Extreme States, An Ethic for Treatment, has been published as part of the Palgrave-Lacan series, and it's now available, and I really recommend it. Welcome, Brett. Thank you. So to begin, I'm I'm really interested in hearing a little bit of the story of how you arrived at these particular interests, psychosis and psychoanalysis. How did you turn your attention to these two things? Um, <clears throat> well, I think, um, and it's, a, it's an interesting question to me because it makes me wonder which came first in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think it did, it is the case for me that my interest in psychosis and, and what I would call extreme states, so not necessarily psychosis, but other experiences, altered states, other experiences that are outside the norm, I suppose. I, I think these were on my mind, you could say, as a child, as a, as a teenager, as a young adult. But of course, you know, I wasn't thinking about psychosis in a Lacanian way, or I didn't have the concepts to think about them. But I think I, I, at least I think about it this way, because I know that, say, when I discovered on my own Freud or Lacan or others, and I, I believe the reason it appealed to me, the thinking appealed to me was because it helped me think about something I was already grappling with, mm-hmm. not necessarily personally, but just in my surroundings. My parents were in the field in a certain way, not in the same way that I am, but I was the son of parents who were working in institutions. And so I would go to work with them sometimes. I knew the kids or adults that they were trying to work with. And so I think I was exposed in different ways to some extreme (laughs) things, you could say, sort of in that context. But so anyway, I, I think I was, you could say, interested, born into it in a way, but also just interested or felt compelled to understand something. So that said, I think I start, you know, I think my, my father gave me one of R.D. Lang's books, uh, probably in high school or something. And I don't think I could really understand it at the time, but it still spoke to me in some way. I kind of got the gist that there was a certain kind of respect, a different approach to, to hearing or understanding madness, psychosis, or other things that I wanted to know more about let's say. So it was maybe one of the first things that gave me a concept or a way to to think about it other than just a personal way. And um, so I think, so that's not psychoanalysis per se, but uh, at least not the way that I think about it now. But I began reading 
Lacan uh, in my early 20s and, and Deleuze a bit, again, not really understanding probably, but again, I had the feeling that these were important ideas and again, helped me put things in a certain perspective. I think my interest, my sort of the, the coming together for me of, of psychosis and psychoanalysis happened when I attended a training by um, Willie Apollone, Daniel Bergeron and, and Lucy Cantan. I think it was in 1997 in San Francisco, they came out here. Uh, and so they gave a three-day training on that uh, topic. And of course, I was blown away just about how much work they had done and wanted to know more. You know, So I think it was after that that I began to travel to Quebec like many others in, in the summer and attend the, the training seminars, which of course are on many things, not just psychosis. But it, it, it seemed to me, and I think it's the case, that you know, their work in a way reformulates psychoanalysis from the position of the question of psychosis in a way, or maybe a question that underlies any structure, but wow. certainly their advances in, in psych in the treatment of psychosis are kind of unparalleled. So that's really where and it was about that same time that I was entering formal training to be a clinician and trying to find a way to, to train as an analyst, that kind of thing. Wow. Yeah, thank you. That's a very generous answer. And I'm really interested in, in this point you kind of brought up of something underlying every structure and not just psychosis. I mean, it also leads to to a second question that I have for you, which is about different ways of understanding what we are talking about when we say psychosis, right? So in your book, you, you lay this out very well and distinguish psychosis as a subject's structure from the psychiatric diagnoses that are based on symptoms such as delusions and hallucinations. And so I wonder if you could just offer for a definition of psychosis as a structure and, and say something about how it's different from its phenomena, which you are already implying in adding and extreme states, <laughs> which mm -hmm. are not necessarily covered by psychosis and yet share mm -hmm. something, right? So what is that difference between structure and symptom, I guess? Yeah. So, yeah. So by phenomenology, I, I mean symptoms. I think, I think it's a fundamental distinction that we use uh, in psychoanalysis that makes it different or, or, or leads into a different approach than, say, psychiatry or, or other maybe behavioral approaches or the like. So, right, like you alluded to, I think in psychiatry, it, they're dealing mainly with phenomenology or symptoms. So voices, delusions, I would even say visions or different kinds of perceptual experiences, bodily experiences, uh, experiencing things in the body. For example, this doesn't necessarily mean from an analytic perspective, I would say that we're meeting someone with a psychotic structure because different things can cause that. For example, drug-induced psychosis is probably the easiest example that someone maybe who has been using methamphetamine for too long and can have this kind of experience, but then it, it clears for the most part or goes away after they stop using or slow down or something like that. It's a it's a it's an important I think distinction uh, for us. So that's kind of what I mean by phenomenology. You know, a set of experiences that may or may not correspond to a, an underlying structure. Of course, it's not my idea. This idea of psychotic structure. I mean, this is in Lacan for sure. And you know, I've referred to Jafrique. They operate with this kind of idea. Not everyone does. I, I'm aware of that. That there are other, even within the Lacanian field, I think perspectives that are not sort of that don't refer to the structure of psychosis as much. I still find it very helpful, not just diagnostically, but in terms of how I approach the treatment, for example. 
So I, I was thinking when I read you this question you, that you sent, I, I was thinking of it in a couple of different ways. One is, and this isn't uh, really fully developed yet, but there is a clear structure in the discourse of the psychotic, you could say. So when we uh-huh. listen to psychosis, we hear or start to hear a logic of that experience, a structure to that experience versus say in psychiatry, if they do listen to the symptoms without this perspective in mind, I think it just sounds like chaos or a malfunction of the brain or something like that. So it's not taken as, a, there's, this is not a meaning-centered approach to, to the symptoms. So, so in the book, I have a, a case that I discuss where if we look at that, there's a clear structure to this person's experience where there's a specific other that is controlling their experience and that sends them special messages, both sort of evil messages and benevolent messages. And that patient is elected or chosen in a certain way to carry out a a mission or a a task that gives them a a real sense of importance within within that system. So that's sort of the place to begin, I think, is to listen in a way that in a way assumes that there's a there's a sense to this person's experience happening, but that's just the place to to begin. So th- that's a little different than saying or to the way in which say Lacan talks about. I think the structure of psychosis, and it's also it's something that I've found very difficult to answer directly. <laughs> I mean, I think it's possible to do it in writing, and I think in the book I sort of am able to sort of articulate that in a certain way. What does it? What does structure mean? What does the structure of psychosis mean? But to me, I think the structuring sort of access or element in psychosis is the subject's relation to the other. Yeah. Uh-huh. And what we might call the structure of the address and the ways in which when you listen to someone who's has a psychotic structure, I think it sounds different. The mm-hmm. other uh, is in a very different place than, say, in neurosis. Or, you know, Lacan would say the other is barred in neurosis. The other is uh, castrated. And so the subject is castrated. I think in, in the experience or the field of psychosis, the other is unbarred, uncastrated and, and unlimited. And therefore, you know, Apollon calls it the sort of capricious other, uh, the mm-hmm. other that can do anything to or with you. Uh-huh. So I, I don't think the, the question or the concept of foreclosure is unrelated to that, but I don't want to get into the concept of foreclosure because it, it's just so difficult to speak off the cuff about. But uh, as one of my friends said, colleague, you know, foreclosure is something that happens mm-hmm. in the life of the subject, which may sound like nothing to others. But to me, I've never forgotten when she said that because there's something very true about that. And you can hear, I would just say the effects of it such that so now we have an other that is not credible that is unlimited and unrestrained and that is the subject is left to contend with mm-hmm. in some way i think in in uh in early psychosis say before someone maybe develops or starts to really develop a a, a theory or a delusional construct to mm-hmm. explain that experience mm-hmm. there's a, maybe more you hear about more of a chaotic experience happening that's disorganized voices starting to open up or come in through a kind of hole in their experience. Annie Rogers has some very interesting ways of talking about the different sort of versions of the other that seem to populate the psychotics experience. And she speaks along these lines too. I think it's in the interview that I do with her in the book. Oh, great. Actually, I think it's really interesting to, to hear you speak about how you are something sounds different when you're listening to a psychotic structure. I'm just highlighting that that you are in both cases listening. And, and therefore, the difference wouldn't be simply, this sounds like nonsense to me. Therefore, I can say this is not neurotic <laughs> or not normal. 
Mm-hmm. And instead you're speaking of something more, more like what is the position of this subject with regard to, to the other? Like how, what is their experience? That's what are, what you're trying to attune your ear to, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. What is their position in relation to the other and which other? Uh-huh. And, and which other? other. But also, and so therefore, if it's the other in psychosis, there's, I think, a question of what is this person, what is this subject's relation to a kind of rupture in their Mm -hmm. world? Um, And so, but that's the question, I would say, with any structure, with any neurosis, psychosis, or perversion. Mm -hmm. Psychosis, I think, is a human, it's it's one possible experience for for the human. It's a response to, to the rupture or to the void in some way. It's, it's maybe not a question of, you know, why is someone psychotic, but why isn't everyone psychotic? Mm-hmm. You know, how do people make, and I, in the book, I speak of choices, which I don't really mean as conscious choices per se, but sort of there's sort of, there's a question of an economical choice in someone's life when faced with X, Y, or Z, you know, when, when faced with certain challenges, certain encounters, traumatic encounters, mm-hmm. things that went unexplained, the traumas, and how does someone respond to that? How does someone make sense of something that's that doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, that's and in psychosis, we can you can hear the difference in the type of discourse that they produce, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least in, in what we might call extraordinary psychosis, you know, psychosis in the kind that I the type that I discuss in the book or the type that we see with Schraber, that kind of delusion that's sort of very global and you, deals with universals. Uh-huh. Uh, very big questions. These are not interpersonal questions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That seems. These are about the fabric of the universe, you know, and having to deal with fundamental problems with it. Right. That's, that's what I, so when you're talking about listening, Mm -hmm. um, if you listen with those things in mind, you hear things differently. Right. Uh, Lucy Cantan said once, I think, or wrote, uh, you know, the the delusion is a theory of an experience. I'm paraphrasing, but Mm -hmm. delusion is a theory. It's a way of explaining a certain sub experience the subject is having yeah yeah that's helpful so that would change the way you listen to someone who's so-called delusional yeah it's like an attempt to make sense (laughs) in in the face of something yeah it's an attempt to make sense you hear this similar idea in peer models like the hearing voices network where they don't use the word delusion they use the word frameworks Mm -hmm. to destigmatize and depathologize the effort right these are frameworks that people produce to explain something that they encountered. So to bring us back a little bit to like the more widespread and perhaps very limited understanding of psychosis, not the psychoanalytic one, it would seem that a delusion is a false belief that takes hold of someone having a psychotic crisis instead of it being what we just said, like a framework in this other uh, vocabulary, a way of making sense as some kind of response that is coming from the subject and to an experience. But instead, in this everyday understanding, it's like always contrasted, I guess, with shared reality. Like, does this correspond with reality or not would be the criterion that is used uh, in a more everyday sense. And in the same way, I was thinking of manic or depressive episodes as an example. And like from a psychiatric point of view, a chemical imbalance explains that. Like if you ask a psychiatrist, why is this happening? (laughs) They would say, oh, because the serotonin is here or 
or a mood disorder or something like that. Yeah. And then there's, you know, antipsychotic medication these days is very, is very popular. Like, you know, it, and it seems to relieve these kinds of symptoms. But an analyst like you takes a different approach to all of this. So I went, so I think that it's like complicated terrain because these symptoms, unlike the symptoms of, for instance, diabetes, you have a sugar spike and nobody's going to be worried about what you believe about it. Instead, here instead, these symptoms involve feelings and beliefs and perception and everything you were just saying. So like the way in which a person is processing their being here. I, I wonder what you would say about this contrast. Just simply, it's something that I think about. I mean, you brought up several things, I think, sort of this question of reality, you know, because we were talking about how how we might listen to someone who's so-called delusional or speaking in that way, and maybe someone trying to reality test, comparing it to consensual reality. And then you brought up medication mm-hmm. as a response. Yeah. That's how mainstream mental health and psychiatry and medicine respond to what the psychotic has to say is there's an effort to stop it or quiet it or or muffle it in some way to bring relief, Mm -hmm. um, I guess, versus the analytic approach, which we've kind of started to talk about. So, yeah. And I suppose, you know, there's a place for reality testing. There's a place for medication. I believe I I said a lot of my training was through freak and my learned a lot about psychosis and how to think about psychosis and work with psychosis from them. Uh, and their clinic is not against medication at all. It's not one of those clinics. There are many, there are places like that that try to do it without it, have a different sort of set of principles and reasons for that. The people I work with may or may not be on medication. Of course, I don't prescribe. I'm not in that position, but mm-hmm. they often have a psychiatrist, which of course allows me in some ways to stay out of that medicalized role. But yeah, the question of reality, I, I, if I'm able to be in sort of the right position with someone, I'm not, I'm aware of consensual reality because I'm in it too, whatever that is, but I'm more interested in the reality of the subject or the truth of the subject. And in that sense, it's, there's nothing false about it, right? There's nothing false about delusional thinking or what the voices have to say. You know, they're trying to say something just like the symptom in neurosis is trying to say is, is a, a form of, uh, nascent speech or something. (laughs) Uh, I'm just kind of riffing on that. But I think it's always a question of what is trying to be said here, because the subject is censored, the truth of the subject is not able to come out in any other way, apparently. Yeah. So I don't worry about reality, reality is going to be fine. (laughs) There's a lot of people who worry about reality, and how psychosis threatens reality. Uh So They want to restore the psychotic to a sound state of mind, which is not wrong either, right? I mean, people who in the throes of a crisis are not enjoying it either. Yeah. But the question is, how do we approach this? You know, medications, I have patients that I've met that they like the, the, the medications working for them in the way that they want it to work. Mm-hmm. They may not want to speak about these things yet or ever, but what about when it doesn't work yeah. or, or barely works or causes them some harm, at least perceived harm? Then we have a longer road, right? Then we we can offer maybe an analytic approach. So I had someone, you know, that I worked with at one point for, you know, a a good amount of time. And I have to keep all this real in really broad strokes, but, you know, someone that was had a history of pretty being pretty heavily medicated. 
just to keep things somewhat stable, although it really wasn't very effective for her. It dulled her mind and her emotions. It changed her whole affect, but it would maybe keep her for periods of time out of the hospital. But over time, you know, we worked for a, a while. And when we ended, I, I asked her what had changed for yeah. her, if anything, because things had changed. She hadn't been hospitalized for one year. You know, the last time I, she was hospitalized, I was part of that. I had to to help her go to the hospital, but it had been a while and she was succeeding in the things that she wasn't able to succeed at before. Things in reality, yeah. you know, th- things in the world that people want to succeed at, school, family, things that weren't really attainable. She was doing them. It's not that she wasn't experiencing anguish and pain and maybe sometimes voices or thoughts, but she said, well, my whole relationship to those things changed. Yeah, I, I view them now as part of me, whereas before, so this is a major shift, I think, in, in, in many treatments, is going from a position where, for the person, where all of the voices and message are, messages are alien, in a sense, coming from the outside. They're not me. There's an invasion of evil or of, of coercion, of abusiveness. But what can happen over the course of time and speaking and, and work is that the relationship to those phenomena can change. So yeah. just the, the concept for someone to arrive at a place where they now have a perspective that, oh, those voices were coming from inside of me because they wanted me to hear something. This is a major difference, right? It makes it possible to live with voices, say, because they, they don't always go away as far as I know. They can change. They become less severe. Maybe they do go away. Other ones come. Maybe they go away entirely. I would say with most people I work with, there's sort of traces of all these things, just as in neurosis, the symptoms go away entirely. Not that I know of, <laughs> but we have a different relationship to the death drive that was behind them, to the complete destructiveness that was behind the psychotic or neurotic symptoms, such that we can now live and have something to offer the world. It's just so much more severe and the stakes are so high in, in um, psychosis, I think, because one becomes so isolated by the solution. And the solution was pure delusion and this kind of thing, right? That cuts one off from collective reality. So we don't, it's not that we don't like collective, you know, we don't want, we're not against reality. Uh The way back to survive in the social link, you could say, Mm -hmm. is, is not to try to measure up to it, right? Not to try to impose that on the person saying, it's not working. It's the thing that was causing them pain in the first place, probably. Does this make yes. sense? This is making a lot of it's I, I find it really beautiful that you say like there's a relationship to the voices to stick to the psychotic experience in which the subject can recognize that they were trying to say something. <laughs> like that part is the part. They're coming from within, they're not coming from outside, but the but they wanted they were there to say something. <laughs> And there was a time like offered up to listen to what that was, to what they had to say. Mm-hmm. I, I think that in your book, you put it very beautifully in, in an example. I'm right now, it's escaping me which one exactly, but it was something about like being afraid of someone following you on the street. And then you just like cross the street to the other sidewalk to run away from this thing. 
And it keeps following you until you turn around and face it and see what it wants. Or this. what do you want? Yeah, <laughs> it makes so much sense. Yeah, and the neurotic for the I guess that for neurotics because it's not so isolating at times, the symptom can be you know you one can turn one's back to the symptom and be chased one's whole life by this by the symptom without yeah. like maybe you're not put against the wall. Until it's too late or something like that. With a neurotic symptom, you can keep... Yeah, I think there's a way in which we often think that, oh, it's a completely different thing happening in psychosis, but the structure is not that different in the way that the treatment is structured, I think, in the, the question of the subject's relation to the symptom and the function of the symptom for the person. These are, I think, transcend structure, but for myself, I just... It's, it does seem like we're dealing with something much more severe, obviously, in psychosis, where certain things are more likely, you know, suicide is more likely, other kinds of destructiveness. Although, I mean, there there can be very high severity in neurosis, too. So it, it, I try not to get too bogged down. And I mean, these are all very useful diagnostically, like I said, and, and to help think about things, but it's much messier in the clinic, as, as everyone knows. That's very interesting. I think that's something that especially those of us who are, um, you know, working on psychoanalysis with texts more than with more than in a clinic really need to remember that and and hear that. I really like also the way in which you were articulating reality and and the subject's experience and showing that it's not that the that psychoanalysis is against reality but instead it's like creating a a space for something where that where we where the I guess the demands and the constraints of reality are not going to like stifle what is trying to express itself from the unconscious that you would kind of allow that to find its words and then there would be some effect that that appears in reality like you said with this example of patient then being able to do things in her life that are that are visible by by anyone, right? Like that have to do with like her job or her family or... But I think very different approaches, that's where things diverge, I think. So if you take this position, I guess an analytic position that we don't need to have the psychotic turn into something else or stop talking. I mean, this happens, right? People say, stop talking, don't listen to them. I've heard this from other providers. Mm-hmm. Don't listen to them. Tell them to shut up. I mean, this is a this is a reaction. Wow. This is a fearful reaction that's sort of, I think, sort of couched in or, or clothed <laughs> in in the language of you know psychiatry or psychology. And I suppose if you don't have a longer view, maybe you don't have an idea of where why you're listening. Yeah. Why would you? So I, I respect that in a way, right? So it's you can't toward what end are you are you allowing this person not allowing, but allowing yourself to listen. Mm-hmm. And how do you answer that question? Because that is a, a wonderful thing to explore. To what end does the analyst well, I'll, I'll give a, I'll give another example. So uh, I've been really interested in listening recently. You know, we were in a seminar and someone, we were talking about listening because psychoanalysis is referred to as the talking cure. Mm-hmm. There was this question, well, what about the, kind of the listening cure or something? Like, what is the effect of listening? Is listening an act? I believe it clearly is. Uh, but what does that look like? Right. Mm-hmm. So to this question of like, what, toward what end, why are you listening to this person? And I might even have that question after two years. So I, I have a, an example of someone that really struck me because he was so 
um, the delusion was so airtight. And sometimes people all listen to, and it's looser than that. It's sort of a coming and going from consensual reality to sort of this delusional explanation of things. But with her, there was never, it never budged. There was no gap there. And she had, or he hadn't really responded to me proposing a different kind of treatment frame where maybe we work, focus on dreams or some ways that we could find an inroad into that, to, into that experience. But long story short, this went on for years uh, where nothing seemed to change. And all I did was listen, but also question in ways that we do in analysis, I think, questions about the logic, how does this work, et cetera, trying to have, encourage an elaboration with the idea in the back of my mind that by me raising questions, maybe they would eventually have a question or that something would run aground and an opening would uh, somehow come about. So over time, something changed in her experience of the voice, his experience of the voice and of the beliefs such that they had a, a question about it. Uh-huh. And this delusion was very, um, it ex- kind of explained everything. Again, I have to keep it very vague and kept them completely isolated from their, the outside, you know, the, the, their family, their, everything was part of the delusion. Everything was controlled, like, which is often sort of the hallmark. But at some point, a voice stopped, a certain message stopped coming that was promising them something. And this was very startling and upsetting and depressing. Mm-hmm. for them. And it created a certain kind of rupture in the delusion, which is what we're looking for. How will the rupture come? You know, in, in sort of one version of this, of, of the analytic model, it's the dream work because it produces subjective history and subjective encounters, personal encounters that sort of underlie certain moments in the creation of the delusion. But that wasn't happening here. So mm-hmm. anyway, it came about in this somewhat more spontaneous way, I would say following from a certain kind of listening and questioning more importantly, she made the ethical choice to take up the question. She could have ignored it, uh, fashioned a new kind of element of the delusion to explain it, for example. But they took this up. They took up this question and, for example, said, what if all of this was false? What if I've been deceived by this, all these beliefs? A pivotal moment, I would say, for them. And more to the point, because there is always this question, well, what effects does it have in the life of the person? Is it, it could just stay there that somehow this is said in the sessions, but no, she, she became depressed, which I think is a sign of kind of progress in a certain way, because depression speaks to grief and loss and it's the grief and loss of what they had believed and what had been sort of yeah. the, the explanatory device for, for many, many years. But anyway, this led them to also make another choice, which was to reconnect with people that had been, uh, that were part of her family, that the delusion had sort of explained away. Mm-hmm. So they were able to reconnect uh, with family only because of the the fall of certain parts of their their delusion. I, I'm giving that example. Hopefully, it's clear enough. Yeah. Uh, that you know this question of why listen. Yeah. And yeah. This this took this this sort of unraveling of sorts took place over five years mm-hmm. with gaps in the treatment. And it's not something I could have controlled, but it's something I always kind of some version of that that I would. Uh, my desire was attached to. That's wonderful. That, I mean, that's a huge, very fascinating topic too, the desire of the analyst. And uh, and you presented this problem from that perspective here. And I was wondering from the side of the patient, 
or the analysand, what can they be hoping for? Like they are, they are undergoing a very profound alteration of their, like of, of the whole system of, of how they understand everything, as you said earlier. So in a way they can't really foresee it. <laughs> I'm thinking of the delu- the certainty that comes with delusion, which you speak about in the book. What you just described seems to be like the opening up of a gap or a place for doubt and for a question and for uncertainty. If someone who is thinking of what to, how to deal with their experience and they were considering doing an analysis, what could they hope for? What could they, like when they go get an antipsychotic medication, as you said earlier too, they may be wanting relief from the symptoms because there's a lot of turmoil. Some like There can be turmoil in, in this whole set of symptoms, but if they're choosing an analysis, what could they be hoping to get out of it? So I can see it with this same example. I can see that this person, you know, gained the possibility of not being so alone or like connecting with other people, their family. You know, I'm I'm also thinking of this from the perspective of the kinds of uh, things that can be heard by by a patient. Like, oh, you have schizophrenia, it's incurable, and you're never going to be a doctor. You were you were a, a medical student, and then now you've come. Now these symptoms have appeared. It's clear that you're schizophrenic, and therefore your life is over. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that the that suicide could be more common. Well, so there's two things, right? There's, I mean, that's that's one. What you were saying prior to just to that sort of that's the bad prognosis example where someone in the field says that to someone Mm -hmm. that you have this severe diagnosis now, and this is what you should expect from life Mm -hmm. because of your disease, that kind of thing. Um, I guess, versus someone who maybe is talking to someone else, not the psychiatrist, not, not a particular type of medical provider, but what can someone hope from, from analysis? So I, I think just to take, you know, the, the bad prognosis I mean, that's really interesting because I think that's still very much the case today that patients, uh, if they are given that diagnosis are recognized as being schizophrenic or psychotic will be told such thing that, you know, really lower the bar in so many words, you're not going to be able to accomplish the things you wanted to accomplish. I don't really understand the place from which that comes. I, I'm not a, I, I think that's a very common thing to say, right, for a, for a, uh, within the medical model. You're giving good advice. I, I, I believe they must believe that, right? And from their perspective, it is somehow, given what they know mm-hmm. for the course of the illness and, and, and sort of what the statistics say or something like that. I don't think it has to be the case. I think and this is something I was speaking with, with to someone who's both a clinician, but also has an experience of psychosis. And, and she was telling me that early on, she was told exactly that. You shouldn't have children. You won't be yeah. able to. They were even sort of surprised that this person was in school, in college, and doing okay. So there was a there was a kind of mismatch or misrecognition for this person. And so she told me, "Well, I'm glad I didn't believe that, and I'm glad my mother didn't believe that." Yeah, they wanted to put her straight in the state hospital. This is a wild kind of a occurrence from a while ago, but and her mother said, "Nope, she's going back to school." And she said, "Well, I think my mother probably her defiance saved my." my life. 
Uh, all that to say that I think that's largely a pretty damaging perspective to offer to someone. It's it's not a hopeful one. Yeah. But I assume they think it's realistic. And so I asked the same person because they're also a clinician now, what they tell people. And they said, well, right. You wanted, you wanted to complete your PhD. You wanted to go to Germany and do something. Well, it might, it might be a little hard. It might be harder. You shouldn't give up on your desire because right? there are many examples of this of people who have had very traumatic, difficult histories, living through psychosis and sort of trauma reactions and all kinds of things, so, you know, severe substance abuse, and they emerge to be very successful teachers and lawyers and professors. You know, Cindy Marty Hadge in the book that I interview, mm-hmm. he speaks to this really eloquently, you know, that over and over, she was given poor prognosis and, and treated like she couldn't really rise above anything. But today, she's a very successful educator within the Hearing Voices Network and, and often a keynote speaker at large national conferences because she was able to overcome that. So I approach it in the same way. We don't want to deny that there, there are struggles and rough patches and things are happening. These things really happen. Crises happen and they cause setbacks. Yeah. I, I can relate to that. You know, what, no one's life is easy, right? So nothing happens according to plan. So hope is extremely important. Your question was, intrigued me because you were saying kind of like the person I described, what, can someone hope to come in and, and reconnect with their family? I think this is a case where this is a question that raises something that points to how it is different, say, for someone who's experiencing intense certainty and delusions mm-hmm. is that there's not really a problem there for them. That yeah. they, come, she came, like Lacan said, we're there to be good secretaries in the beginning. More than that, but that's what he said, right? It's, it's always instructive to remember that, you know, we're, we're secretaries to the insane, which is to say we're there to learn because this person was there to teach me for a number of years how this very elaborate world worked. Yeah. She wasn't without purpose. She was not without, she was not isolated. She was very busy mm-hmm. with her world. And she had a very important place in that world. But yeah. I hear it, I hear it. I'm the one who has had some hope. And who knows where in her what what she was thinking, or but it's not really the case, say, with someone like her, that there's this, I want to work on this symptom so that I can, you know, I want to work on my depression so that I'm more motivated and want to can reconnect with my family. And yeah, that's not how they would that's even... a very different mindset, right? Than someone who is in the depths of another entirely different belief system. So that's the question of the transference too, is how do you evoke the transference in the first place? Because mm-hmm. the, for example, that person was not there saying, how can you help me? That's, that's right. Not, that's not why she was there. Yeah, it's a different position for both of us. Yeah. Why is she talking? You know, why is this person even telling me this? I assume there's some there's a subject in there. Yeah. Wants to know or that has some question somewhere or the, you know, there's a possibility of a of a I I, I presented that scenario in in more detail recently at a conference. And I, I also talked about how in psychosis, I often find that what I would we're listening for the subject. That's what I'm listening for. We usually say, oh, we're listening for the unconscious. Well, I'm listening for the subject of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. I'm listening. Where is the subject? When is the subject going to emerge in this wall of psychosis? So I find that the subject often comes in the form of a question. What was I thinking? 
was this all false? To me, that I heard this, that to me, that was the subject finally saying something.